Tonight, we will be talking about Psalm 45. Like the Song of Songs, this is a love song that, has, that celebrates two main things. First, it celebrates the marriage of a Davidic king. Second, it celebrates our marriage to the Davidic king, Jesus. Let's look at uh, the superscription, which is the stuff, the words before the first verse. That's called the superscription. A meskiel is a teaching device. So this means that the psalm was geared toward teaching us something. And specifically, what it's teaching us about is a love song, which is literally a song of loves, plural. It's a song about great love. Great love vertically with the Lord, great love horizontally in marriage. If you're not married, I'm going to use a lot of married examples. Please apply it to friendship or some other close relationship. This is referring, obviously, to a marital ideal. So if you or your spouse are not falling, not exactly at the ideal, that's okay. Be gracious with one another because it's something that the Lord wants us to strive for, to work toward, but not that he expects us to be at the ideal, okay? All right, let's go to verse one. My heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. The word for overflows speaks of a bubbling up and a boiling over like a water pot that is lit underneath. And it bubbles and then it boils. And if it boils hard enough, it boils over. It gets expressed outside of the container. One thing that we can do to find out what the psalmist is talking about here, because he's talking about inspiration, how do you get inspired by the Lord, is to look at, there's a, an interpretive technique where you look at a keyword uh, and find the same keyword someplace else, or a, a similar word to that, or you look for a similar thought in Scripture. And the passage that came to my mind, two of them, but one of them was Romans 12, 9 through 12, Romans 12, 9 talks about um, loving what is right and hating what is wrong. And Psalm 45 talks about that. Romans 12, 11 also talks about a bubbling up and overflow. So there's similar kind of word there. And there are, are several points that are to be made here. First of all, if we love what is right, we will express that in some way. We'll do it. We'll express it verbally. It's not just something that we'll keep it in the container. But the Holy Spirit is the one who acts as a fire. He lights our fire, if you will, our deep emotions so that we can give expression to them, spirit-directed emotions, an inspiration to go to someone and say something or whatever. Yet, because we can choose, what we often do is what we're told not to do in the New Testament, which is to put out the Spirit's fire, 1 Thessalonians 5.19. This grieves the Spirit, Ephesians 4.30. What we need to do is to just let that happen. Let it 
We feel this bubbling up and just express it. I love you, honey, because it is bubbling up and I feel like I need to express it. One scholar said that the energies of love that are prompted by the Spirit either have to be used or they get lost. So now if you don't, if you feel that bubbling up and you don't do something with it, it's like throwing water on the fire that the Spirit wants to stir up. And by inference, you can say that there's a spiritual coldness that gets experienced instead of the heat that he wanted. We're to be fervent in spirit. That's a command for every believer. Verse 2, or actually, uh, second point, the second verse. Second Peter 1.21, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. It is vital to understand how we experience inspiration, as this poet did in Psalm 45, because Galatians 5.16 to 25 tells us that the way we grow in love is to be led by the Spirit. Now, how are we led by the Spirit? I'm going to give you eight different ways, and with a verse for each one. I'm going to do it quick, so you may not get all the verses, but uh, hold on. First of all, you can notice if you have peace about a certain situation. Colossians 4.15, especially in the Phillips translation. A second way is to have a mental picture. When the picture is given to a person who's awake and that picture is from the Lord, it would be considered a vision. It's a type of vision, even if it's a quick mental picture. Now, just because you have a quick mental picture doesn't necessarily mean it's from the Lord. I'm going to explain that more fully later. That's Acts 16.9. Paying attention to so-called coincidences, especially when the coincidences uh, are not likely to happen, can be a way that you can feel that stirring and inspiring of the Lord where he's directing you to go in a certain direction. And, And by the way, the picture in 2 Peter 1.21 is of a sailboat where you have unfurled the sail of the sailboat of your life so that you can catch the wind of God, which is the Spirit. And then he bears you along, directs you where he wants you to go when he wants you to go. The same verb is used in Hebrews 6.1 of our growth and maturity go on to maturity, to Christian maturity. So how do you go on to Christian maturity? Well, you're born along by the Spirit. That's exactly what Galatians 5, 16 to 25 talks about. That's how you grow in love. All right, concerning so-called coincidences, uh, there was a time that my wife and I needed a new vehicle, but we didn't have money, we didn't have credit, We didn't know what we were going to do, but we just prayed and committed it to the Lord. What else are you going to do? And then Valerie, my wife, had a mental picture of a burgundy van and an impression that that van was to be ours and it was going to cost $5,400. Okay, well, what do you do with that? You, You pray about it. Uh, Shortly after this, a friend of ours who didn't know about her mental picture calls up and says, hey, I know you're looking for a vehicle. I found a burgundy van for $5,400 that, you know, uh, is for sale. It's used. I'm willing to loan you the $5,400. Now, when you have that kind of specificity 
in coincidences, then that's probably a leading of the Holy Spirit, right? So we, we bought the van. All right, you can also look at uh, observe whether doors are closed or open, Revelation 3, 7, and 8. That can be another way we're directed. Uh, receiving a dream, Matthew 2, 12. Sometimes God speaks to us in dreams like he did to Joseph. Hearing our conscience speak on the matter. If your conscience is telling you no, it's a no. Don't violate conscience, Romans 14, 23. Having a sense or impression, especially if it is persistent. 1 Samuel 15, 27 to 28, Luke 2, 27 to 32. For many, many, many years, I had three impressions that were lasted a long time. One of which was that I was going to get ordained. One of which was that I was going to get my doctorate. One of which was that I was going to write books, and a number of them were going to get published. Well, all of those things happened precisely as the Lord said. So what I did during the time of waiting was if God is perhaps going to have me write books that are going to get published, I need to write books, right? You don't just wait. You do what's consistent with the impression that you have. So that's what I did. Um, a final thing is reasoning about different pieces of God's revelation on the subject before you. For instance, um, Trying to discern what the Spirit wants you to do is sometimes like flying in the dark. And so you're looking for runway lights. If you see a number of these eight avenues that are lined up, it's a good bet that that's where the runway is and to land there. On the reasoning part, though, um, Acts 16.10, you have to make sure that, you're not, uh, that you avoid worldly forms of reasoning. For example... I love my dad. He died in 2006. He was a great guy. Uh, there's this one time uh, he wanted me to show him a picture of this young woman named Valerie that I was recently dating. So I showed him a picture of Valerie. He looks at the picture, looks at me, looks at the picture. You're out of your league. Well, <laughs> that is not world, that, that is worldly reasoning. It's not biblical reasoning. Why? Because biblical reasoning, God says that he does not look on the outward appearance. Man does. That's how man does it. God looks at the heart. And thank God for a spirit-filled wife, now a wife, who um, was able to see things as God sees things. Verse 2. You are the most beautiful person. Grace or graciousness is lavishly poured upon or through your lips. It can be translated either way. Since beauty here refers primarily to beauty of character, inner beauty, we just talked about that, there's a connection between inner beauty, grace, and graciousness. When you receive God's grace, that grace will transform you. How does it transform you? You become more gracious. You become more loving, right? And therefore, you're more beautiful to the Lord and to those who see as the Lord does. The similar thought is in Psalm 149.1 where it talks about the godly. And if you look up the word godly, it can mean those who have received grace or it can mean those who are gracious. Same kind of thing. 
So if you want to become more beautiful to a spirit-directed spouse, what do you do? Well, you receive the grace that God is offering to you in each moment. You use that grace to do the next duty that's before you. And then, according to John 1.16, God will give you a fresh and increasing supply of grace for the next thing he's called you to do. That's how we beautify ourselves in Christ. That's how we grow in him. That's how we move toward higher levels of love. Verses three through five. Gird your sword in splendor, spoken to the king, means to be ready to display God's glory in battle. How do you do that? How do you display God's glory in battle? The next line tells you, ride into battle victorious. Well, what does that mean? According to Ross in his three-volume commentary on the Psalms, ride can mean may God's spirit come upon you to control and enable you to do this task. There are two passages that have similar ideas in the Old Testament. One is Judges 6.34 in the original Amplified. It says, But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon with himself and took possession of him. The idea is he came on Gideon much like a rider would be on a horse and with the horse having a bit and a bridle, the rider directs the horse where the horse is supposed to go. Isaiah 30, 21 is uh, another passage. It says, you will hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it, whenever you start to go the wrong way. The figure would be one, according to a scholar, um, of a draft animal. Let's keep the same picture, a horse. Uh, a draft animal that is, has a rider on it. And so the animal hears a word behind it saying, this is the way, go that way. So again, you have this image of a rider or so, someone being on, the Holy Spirit being on another person for the purpose of leading them toward his, what is best, what the Holy Spirit knows needs to be done in that time. There are three passages in the New Testament, Romans 8.9, Romans 8.14, which also use language of possession. Possession is a bad thing when it's demonic. It's a good thing when it's the Holy Spirit because we're to be like Jesus, and Jesus was possessed by the Holy Spirit. He didn't do anything on his own initiative, John 5.19 and 30. That's possession. You have surrendered your will to God. Not my will, but yours be done. That's, a, that, that's wonderful. That's a great thing because he knows what is best. He seeks to have all of us do what is best, not just simply what we think might be good. Ephesians 5.18 uh, talks about, commands every single believer to be controlled with or influenced by the Holy Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit instead of being filled with wine. When you're filled with wine, you're influenced and controlled by wine. We shouldn't do that. We should instead be filled with, influenced by, controlled by the Holy Spirit. So God wants us to be, if you will, not just his dear companion, but his war horse as he rides into battle. 
Now, what does he ride into battle for? Well, for the cause of truth. That means that we are not to be self-promoting. We are not to be oppressive. It's not about us. It's not about furthering our comfort or anything like that. We're allowing the Lord to take us into battle so that we can champion truth when and how he wants, that we can uh, be champion loyalty, and we can promote community well-being, which in marriage would obviously be promoting the well-being of the marriage. Also, we're writing forth to promote humility. Humility indicates that the king is close to God. Why? Because God gives grace to the humble. He has lavished grace on this king so that he can be gracious. Therefore, there's humility. And with humility comes closeness to God because God sets himself in battle array is how it's put in Peter or James. He, he sets himself in battle array against the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And that grace transforms us so that we can learn to delight in the Lord more fully. And then finally, oh, let me see. Uh, it says, your arrows are sharp. Well, what does that mean? When I first looked at that, it's like, oh, okay, whatever. Let's go to the next thing. But there's actually... I've had to, to cut a lot of material out of here because I don't have that much time. So um, it means that the king's military strength is great. Applied to Christ, it means his military strength is even far greater than this Davidic king's military strength. So we can look at the promise in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me because he's got the strength to make it happen for us. We can do whatever he's called us to do. Verse six, your throne, O God, is forever. I, I wanna camp out here for just a couple of minutes because there's something here that's, I think, really, really important. In Philippians 1.9, Paul prays, he says, may your love grow more and more in real knowledge and practical insight. That's the same theme as Psalm 45, that your love would grow toward the ideal marriage with the Lord and with your spouse, right? Now, how do we get to real knowledge and practical insight? Most especially, it's through the Scripture, right? You understand how to the basics of how to interpret the Scripture, and you get practical insight, you get real knowledge. So we need to have some understanding of how did he conclude that the Messiah, Jesus, was God based on this passage, especially given the fact that the Hebrew translation says, your throne given by God is forever. Well, that has a really different implication, doesn't it? That doesn't suggest that Jesus is God. So I'm, just indulge me for a little bit here. I'm going to assume that the writer here, just for the purposes of illustration, that the writer of Hebrews 1 that cites this verse was the Apostle Paul. That's the ancient view of the, the Eastern Church. 
The Western Church adopted that from the time of Augustine on. Most moderns don't adopt that, but let's just go with it for now, just for purposes of illustration. All right. First of all, how did Paul conclude that? Did he conclude it through Bible study? Most of the time you do, but in his case, it, it came because he had an experience with the Lord on the Damascus Road, right? Which caused him to really start rethinking things. Then, let's, let's use a little imagination here. He has three days where he's waiting for Ananias to come and pray for him, to heal him of blindness and to speak into his life. During that time, I imagine that Paul would have been thinking, how in the world, Lord, could I have missed all of this in the Old Testament? Would you please show me from your scripture how it is that Jesus is God? Inference is another method. Experience, inference. The third one is prayer. You ask for God to show you the truth. That would... Uh, it says that Paul was praying for three days while he waited for Ananias to come, so I'm assuming that that's part of what he was praying. Fourth, you use a variety of credible translations. The Apostle Paul here used the Septuagint translation. The Old Testament scholar that he was, he was looking for translations that gave the literal meaning. And the Septuagint was the only translation at that time that had the courage to translate this in a literal way. Your throne, O God, is forever. The other translation says, ah, well, we can't have the Messiah being God because they added something into Scripture. Proverbs 30, verse 6, tells us not to add any words into the Bible. But there, what they added in is to say, look, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one Lord. Therefore, God is the solitary one. So you can't have God the Father and then Jesus proclaiming that he's God. Therefore, all the signs and wonders that you're doing can't be of God. That was their reasoning. But they added in something because the Old Testament never says that God is a solitary one. It does say that he's one, but it doesn't say that he can't be a plural one. They assumed that that was true. And as a result, they miss Christ because they were filtering everything they saw through the lenses of their assumption. There's actually plenty in the Old Testament. Paul probably looked at Isaiah 9-6, Micah 5-2, and decided, hey, you know what? If I read these for all the literal meaning that they have, that the Messiah is the mighty God and his, he came from days of old, even from the days of eternity... He could be God. And if I look at Genesis 19.24 that talks about the man before Abram was this described as being Yahweh. It says Yahweh uh, called down fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah from Yahweh in heaven. Okay, that kind of sounds like God could be a multiple one moving toward a trinity. So we need to be careful on the one hand not to add in our own assumptions, but the sixth principle that I just gave you was uh, full literal meaning. Read the text for the full literal meaning that it will bear. Use context. The context is it's a royal psalm, which 
It's definitely speaking about the Messiah. So if it's translated this way and it's talking about the Messiah, it could be pointing to him being God. And he knew from his experience and from the testimony of all the people that he now believed that said, yeah, he, Lazarus was dead for four days and he raised him. Yeah, he forgave someone's sins. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And he proved that he had the power to forgive sins by doing a dramatic miracle of this person. All of those kind of things became eye-openers for him, opened up his heart to maybe think differently about his assumptions. All right, verse 7, you have loved what is right and hated what is wrong. These are two sides of one coin. If you don't hate what is wrong, you know, you don't really love what is right. You, you might like it, but you kind of pick and choose about it. Therefore, God your God has anointed you with the oil of joy above your dear companions. Now think about that. Jesus had the greatest joy of anyone on this earth. And that came through a cross. What that suggests is that great joy may come in unexpected ways. So instead of complaining when we're going through something, maybe what we should do is think, God might have some great joy in here for me. He causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and not settle into complaining about what's going on in our world. Verses 10 and 11. Listen, give attention, incline your ear. Wow. Okay. When the Lord says something three times, boom, 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 in a different way, one right after another, hello, you need to listen and pay attention to that. It's like Jesus saying, truly, truly, I say to you, that's pay attention. This is three times. So I would encourage you to consider that God is saying, if you want to have great love, the first duty of love is to listen. Whether it's with Christ, whether it's with our spouse, whether it's with a friend, our first duty should be to listen. Otherwise, how do you hear from the Lord on how to minister to them? How do you hear from your wife to know how to minister to her? You don't know. You're just shooting in the dark. You're kind of going your own way. You rejected the bit and the bridle. You're not being ridden. You're not being directed by the Lord. You've got to listen first. James 1.19 talks about this. Be quick to listen and slow to speak. All right. Forget your people and your father's house. This refers to the commitment that is necessary to display great love. Ruth is an example of this. She gave up everything to be close to Naomi. Everything. James 4.4 4 reminds us that we too have to give up everything. I mean, if you're a living sacrifice, then you don't have an agenda anymore. Right? And that's exactly what Luke 9.23 says. If you would be my disciple, you must disregard your own interests, take up your cross each and every day, and follow closely behind me as a habit of life. Then the king will greatly desire your beauty. 
This refers to the passion and intimacy that are needed to display great love. So if you want to have great love, you have to have great commitment, you have to have great passion, and you have to have great intimacy. God redeemed a people, Titus 2, 13 or 14 says, that would be zealous for good deeds. And the word for zeal there is a different form of the same word in Romans 12, 11 that says to be boiling or aglow with the Spirit. Your aglow with the Spirit is referring to metal that is heated with such intensity that it's glowing or to a pot that is boiling over. And it speaks of high emotion. So there should be a fervency in our passion and a desire for great intimacy like what the Apostle John had, that tender moment of his, about a whole lifetime of those tender moments. And there has to be a commitment like Ruth's, where you are just totally sold out with no stipulations. You don't say, well, Lord, I'll do this, but I'm not going to do that. No, you're a living sacrifice. You have totally given yourself to the Lord. Greatly, uh, let me see. Greatly desire points to a passionate longing for the greatest possible intimacy that is appropriate for each particular relationship. Beauty, in Hebrew thought, indicates more than mere physical beauty. We've already touched on that, but it refers to what functions properly, i.e. to what is good. So you have to ask, how do you know what functions properly from God's perspective? Because he's the only one who gets to decide what proper functioning is. Well, need to read this, right? Need to be around God's people and have a chance to share and get feedback from them about what needs to be done. What, is, what would be proper in this particular situation? We are, remember, we're seeking to move in love toward a great love. We're not there, no one's there, not the ideal kind of love anyway, but we need to be moving toward that. It's a commitment to the process. Like Philippians 2.12 and 13. Hey, Philippians 2.12 says, continuously and strenuously work out the implications of your salvation in fear and trembling. Do you ever get there where you're complete? I don't believe so. But it's commitment to the process to getting there that, that matters, not where you are on the continuum of depth and love. Then, right after this, he says to the princess, he is your Lord, bow down to him. Now, the literal meaning of the command to the bride refers to the belief that wives are to submit to the leadership of their husbands. This command is repeated four times in the New Testament, in four sections, 1 Peter 3, Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, and Titus 2. If we apply this, this particular line bow down to him, he is your Lord, referring to submission. And we apply that to our relationship with Christ. What it is saying is that conversion is a change of lordship. You can no longer live in a self-determined way. Yes, you've received God's gift of grace. It's a free gift. God says, will you spend eternity with me? Are you willing to do that? It's a free gift but you have to be willing to take it. Now, if you, for whatever reason, don't take it, 
then God has no choice but to say, okay, then I guess you can have what you wanted. You didn't want to spend eternity with me, but I'm light, I'm love, I'm freedom from pain, I'm joy. So you're going to be away from any semblance of joy, any semblance of light, any semblance of health, prosperity, goodness. You're basically, there's no choice but hell. That's the only other place that you can go because you're not wanting to be with him. You're not ready to be with him. So William Barclay said, Christianity does not think of a person finally submitting to the power of God. It thinks of them as finally surrendering to the love of God. It's surrendering to his love. He's wooing us with his offer. Come, I want to have a close relationship with you. One filled with commitment, passion, and intimacy. I want to have a great love with you. Verses uh, 12 through 14. How am I doing? Uh, okay, hey, all right, pretty good. Uh, the daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will entreat your favor. Well, what's, what's that about? What it's about is she's being counseled to not focus on what she is losing, but on what she is gaining. Now, if we would do that in our relationship with the Lord and in our marriage or relationship with our friends, wow, how much better would that be, right? Focus on what you're gaining and not on what you're losing. The glass is, is not half empty, it's half full. You know, uh, look at the positive side of things, at, at the good in other people. Uh, this thought is repeated for emphasis in verse 16. And consider this, Esther probably had to do this. Esther was a beautiful woman on the outside and on the inside, a godly woman. And she was asked to marry a king that was not godly. He was, you know, not loyal. He didn't pursue truth. He didn't pursue righteousness. He didn't take the bit and bridle of the Holy Spirit. I mean, right? But it's often not about us. We are soldiers in his army. We're his war horse. We have to remember the larger picture. God knows the larger picture. So yeah, he is concerned about each of us individually, but there's more than just our comfort. There's more than just what we want. It's that bigger picture that we have to keep in mind. The king's daughter is altogether wonderful. This is similar to the Song of Songs, chapter 5, verse 2, that where the bride is described as my perfect one or my flawless one. Now, was she really perfect? Was she really flawless? Come on. No, she wasn't. But how do you fall in love with someone? You focus on the good things about them, and you, you de-emphasize the things that aren't so good, right? That's how you fall in love. So if you want to stay in love and grow toward a great love, guess what you do? You focus on positive things about the person and not on the negative things. So you call her my perfect one, my flawless one, 
because that's how he saw her. He was so emphasizing the things that he loved about her. The Amplified Bible translates a passage in 1 Corinthians 13, 7, that we're to look, I think it's 7, uh, that we're to uh, look for what is lovable in people. And Moffat and the Amplified on a different verse say that love is eager to believe the best about people. Now, if you have evidence that, okay, their motive wasn't good, or what they did, you know, they intended to hurt you, then fine, you, you can't do that. But your natural propensity is to believe the best about people. And that's how we should be, focusing on the positive. Because if you focus on the positive, then you're more likely to praise the beloved, your, your spouse. You're more likely to praise the Lord if you're looking at the good things that he does for you and have an attitude of gratitude instead of focusing on the negative things that you don't have. Well, hey, Lord, how come you're not doing this? Because a habit of complaining leads to resentment and bitterness, and that defiles many. Verses 15 to 17. Filled with excitement, they enter into the king's palace. Among the Jews, the marriage house was called the house of praise. Great love should express itself in great praise. Should it not? If we have a great love for the Lord, should we not express that in great praise? Amen. Instead of just kicking back and kind of, eh, whatever. And yes, it may look different at different times. John puts his head on Jesus' chest. I'm sure that was a super tender moment, and he was probably very quiet, right? He's not jumping up and down and everything else. But it's high praise for the Lord. It's wanting to connect with him in a deep way. Every one of us needs to look at our own heart for do we really want great intimacy with the Lord? Are we really passionate about that? Do we have that kind of commitment? Or are we more comfortable with distance with him because we don't want to be vulnerable? We don't want to give up self-determined living. We want to have it our own way for the most part. All right, so wedding celebrations included joyful dancing, enthusiastic singing, shouting for joy, feasting, and general merriment. Now, Satan will try to prevent us from expressing great praise vertically in our marriage to the Lord and horizontally in our marriage to our spouse. Why does he seek to do this? Because if you have diminished praise, you'll probably have diminished commitment, diminished passion, diminished intimacy, diminished love. You won't have that great love that he's called us to. So how do you get that kind of praise and make sure that you have it in your relationship with the Lord and in your relationship with your spouse? Because one of the key themes in the Song of Songs is praise of the beloved. This tells us how... get. I wrote a book on this, 40 Hints from the Song of Songs, you know, on how to have a great marriage. I mean, it's, it's packed with wonderful gems, but nobody ever seems to teach the Song of Songs anymore. Anyway, um, I would suggest that we, an answer to that was already hinted at earlier in Psalm 45 when it says, ride on in victory where the Holy Spirit comes upon us 
and takes control. Because there's a, some par- a parallel passage in, of sorts in Ephesians 5.18, where the command is to be filled with the Spirit. In other words, have the Spirit control you, direct you, and so on. And then, as most scholars believe, there are five participles that are connected to the verb to be filled that go from verses 19, 20, 21, 21. In those three verses, that you speak to one another in song, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. In a spiritual song, a lot of people, like F.F. F. Bruce thinks, is a spontaneous psalm that is a song of the Spirit. But you do that, you are singing, you are making melody, you are giving thanks, and then you're submitting. Those are the five things that are all outflows of the Holy Spirit results. So if you're full of the Spirit, you'll be doing those kind of things, which includes praise, right? It includes praise to God. It includes thankfulness to God for your spouse and also that would get expressed to them. So the bed and the bridal can be a really great thing. It'll enrich your marriage if you're willing to take it, not as, oh, that's a negative thing because now I can't go where I want. Yes, but you get to be so much more than you could be if you were a wild stallion. What an opportunity. Wow, to be used by God. We're the body of Christ. That means even though he could do it on his own, he chooses to work through us. That's, wow. That's amazing that he would do that. And for us to be able to say, yes, Lord. How awesome is that? That's awesome. After that, it talks about Three key relationships. That stopped. Sermon time on four minutes and it stopped. I don't know how much time I have. I guess I have four minutes in perpetuity. Okay. Hey. Um, So, oh, how did it skip to 225? (laughs) Okay, well, I guess I better wrap up. Anyway, it talks about three relationships and then it goes right into Ephesians 6.10. that is saying finally or in conclusion and can refer to what preceded it. It says, um, it talks in 10 to 13 about the importance of spiritual war because after all, you're to ride to victory. That suggests that there's warfare going on, right? And so we have warfare every day. It's important that we do it because in Ephesians 6.12, I think it is, it talks about the warfare as being a wrestling match to the death. So this is important stuff. Then it talks about the armor of God, and then it ends with, okay, now that you've got the armor on, you're all dressed up, what do you do? You pray. That's the warfare for the most part, is you pray. How do you pray? You pray with every kind of prayer in the Spirit. And in the Spirit is a phrase that is used elsewhere in Scripture and here to mean under the control of the Spirit. Romans 8.26, you don't know how to pray or what to pray for. So the Spirit has to help us in our weakness. When we yield to Him and He directs our praying, then we're able to war effectively for all those relationships that need praise, including our relationship to the Lord. Let me leave you with this, and I've got 45 seconds to spare. With Christ, our fiancé, 
because there were two stages of marriage back then. You're, you're engaged, which is you're married. Joseph, if he was going to divorce Mary, uh, if, he, if he was not going to go to the second stage of the marriage and actually go through the ceremony, it says that he was considering divorcing her. So you're already married at stage one as a fiance. I'm, there's still a marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven, Revelation 19. So we're not into that second stage yet, but we've been betrothed to him is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 11. So, hey, we're already in, baby. We're, we're, we're already his. Anyway, um, with Christ our fiance, let us not be distant, but strive to develop the great love that he wants us to enjoy. Amen. Amen. Pastor, did you want me to pray or did you want to pray? Let's pray. Father, we are just so honored and so grateful for who you are. Wow. We, we love you, Lord. May all these words that were spoken, that were, may the pictures be remembered and the words follow the pictures or however people remember it. But may they be able to, to look back, hearken back on this and have the words transform them because they are your words. They are your words of grace and your grace transforms. Help us to yield to you in every area that is difficult and to not be harsh on ourselves if we don't fall on a certain place of the continuum, if we don't make change quick enough and to be patient with others when they're giving an honest effort, but uh, they're just not as far along as what they would want or we would want. And help us to do all the things that you've asked us to do in here. There were so many things uh, about the husband and about the wife uh, that are relevant for us. And we want to have a great love for you, Lord Jesus, a great love, one that is not distant, one that is not just dutiful, because we're first and foremost not servants. We're sons and daughters. Your word declares in Romans 8 and Galatians 4 that the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are sons and daughters of God and has us cry out passionately, Abba, Father. That is what we want, Lord. Yes, we are servants too. But in love you predestined us to adoption as sons and as daughters that we might be close to you forever and enjoy you forever. May it be so, for we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.